Let's remain seated for a moment. Shall I lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the extraordinary diversity and richness of it. And as we look at this extraordinary uh, Old Testament prophet over the summer, we pray that you'd help us to understand just a little more of the amazing love of God for us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as uh, Ben explained, we're beginning a little series on the book of Hosea uh, tonight. Uh, what I didn't tell Ben is whenever we get a new person who arrives on the staff, what we do is we find an Old Testament passage with the most number of complicated words we can find. We give it to them, and it's their supreme test. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that Ben is a bit of a Hebrew scholar, so he gets them all right, and I'll get them wrong now when I refer to them. So I'll just say that name in verse 6 or verse 7 to avoid any complications on that. Actually, when I, well, in one church I was at, we, uh, we had a reading like this. I think it's even more complicated than this with hundreds of names. And uh, there are about, sort of, I don't know, 800 people in church that night. And the person got through them, you know, manfully battled through the lot. By the time they finished, the whole congregation gave them a round of applause. So we should have given Ben a round of applause, really, shouldn't we? Anyway, Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, uh, verse 1 to 2, verse 1. John Steinbeck, who's one of my favorite authors, once said in his great book, East of Eden, a great and lasting story is about everyone, or it will not last. The strange and foreign is not interesting, only the deeply personal and familiar. In other words, great stories are stories about us, where we can see ourselves, where we can sympathize with the main characters, where we've been through what they go through, understand why they react as they do. That's what makes them interesting, because we can see ourselves in them. And that's one of the reasons why the book of Hosea is so gripping. I guess it's a book where we've all been. We all know, I should think, the sadness, the heartbreak of unrequited love or a love spurned. And so much modern music or so much music through the years and poetry have been written about the same things. I guess uh, one of the, the greatest songs of the last 10 years or so is Adele's song, Someone Like You. Uh, you may have seen the recording of it at the Brits when she sung it at the Brit Awards. There was just her and the piano. No histrionics, no pyrotechnics, no flashing lights, no fancy dancers. Just her, her voice, and the piano. And yet that one video has swept the world. I checked it on YouTube yesterday. It had had 128 million views. And if you know it, you know it's a song about a relationship breakup. How she's heard about a former flame who's now married to somebody else, who's obviously over their relationship, has moved on, as they say, but she's not been able to do so. And as you watch her singing it on that occasion, it's almost unbearably moving. At the end, actually, she turns away, uh, having broken down. The feelings were obviously so raw. Well, Hosea is all about a relationship breakdown the sadness of unrequited or spurned love, the vulnerability of the one who loves, the way in which loving someone means you open yourselves up to being hurt and to being rejected, and the devastation that comes when that person rejects your love for love of someone else. But there's something even more remarkable about it than that, because what is being described here, you see, is not human love. It's, the love, it's not the love of a man or a woman. It is the love of God himself. And the one who is devastated by having his love rejected is not us as humans. It is God. God compares the reality of our rejection of him to the feelings of devastation we experience when our human love for another is spurned. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? 
Here is the Lord Almighty speaking, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one in whom is everything, all power, all authority in our universe. And he says that the only way we can understand the depth of his love for us, his pain when we reject it, is to compare it to our feelings when the woman we love or the man we love spurns us. That God is somehow as vulnerable as that, if you can put it in that way. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that totally extraordinary. Why would God submit himself to that pain because of you and me? But, of course, the story of the Bible is that he, he does. That is the amazing love of God. In fact, the book of Hosea has been called the second greatest love story in the world. What is the greatest love story? Well, it's the love story of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is the second greatest love story because it's a picture of it. It's an illustration of it. It's a pointer to it. The book of Hosea, you see, is all about the extraordinary love of God, even in the face of our rejection of it, and how he goes on loving in the face of that rejection. Now, I guess there will be those among us here tonight. Well, if there aren't, there'll be those that we know who have rejected God and are rejecting him at the moment. We're going our own way, doing our own thing, chasing after something else, worshipping other gods, maybe. What effect does it have upon us? Well, all sorts of things, doesn't it? It, cold, it, it, it freezes our hearts. It hardens our hearts. But it's the effect it has upon God that is so extraordinary. He is hurt by it. In some ways, he's broken by it. He cares. He really cares. I wonder if you ever thought that, that when we rebel against God, he hates it and it hurts him. Isn't that extraordinary? And yet that's what this book is all about. Well, first of all, let's just see the context of it. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. Hosea was a preacher during the reigns of four kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, and one king, Jeroboam, of the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember, because of uh, Solomon's sin, that the uh, kingdom had been split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, which was much smaller, though it actually remained more faithful over the years. But there was a relatively long period, uh, the life of Hosea and his ministry, between 50 and 60 years. It was a time of relative prosperity for the people, an age of luxurious materialism, an age of apparent religious devotion and national security. But it was also a time in which politics, law and religion all seemed to play into the hands of the favoured few. The people's hearts were empty, their religion was shallow, corruption was rampant on every hand. And in particular, the law was being manipulated to the advantage of the rich, and much of the religious activity was a mere show. That's the main thrust of the book. That's the context in which it is written. The people may have had everything materially, but they were proving unfaithful to their God. They were worshipping other gods. They were rebelling against him. They honoured him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They'd begun to live just for pleasure. They'd abandoned hard work, morality and integrity to live for themselves. That wouldn't be a bad way, would it, in which to describe our world today? A lot of religiosity a little real faith. Some living lives of unparalleled riches, while others struggle desperately to make a living. Where all anyone wants to know is how to make more money. As somebody put it very succinctly, many people still seem to believe that the person who dies with the most toys wins. That's the world in which we live. 
And that's the world in which Hosea lived. And it's into that situation that the book of Hosea speaks. We know very little about Hosea himself other than what this introduction tells us. And this very poignant story with which the prophecy begins. But it's certainly enough to grab our attention. That's the context uh, in which the prophecy comes. Notice second the call, verses 2 to 3. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Must be the most extraordinary call of all time, mustn't it? God tells Hosea to marry somebody that they both know will betray him. To marry someone who will be unfaithful, not just once, but again and again and again. In public, in full view of everybody else. Everyone will know that Hosea is the cuckolded husband. They will see his shame and his pain. So it's bad enough being betrayed by someone else, isn't it? But for that to happen in full view of everybody else, for everyone to see your shame, that makes it ten times worse in some ways, doesn't it? Utterly humiliating. Now that is what Hosea was being asked to do, to submit himself to. And he was to do that so people would begin to understand, that he would begin to understand something of what God felt when his people behaved like that. Now, I suspect there are plenty of people who find that whole concept pretty hard to grasp. Someone as esteemed as John Calvin found it very hard to believe that God would actually ask this of somebody. No, he believed the book was actually an allegory rather than a real story. Well, how do we answer that? Well, I think in two ways. First, to say the book is presented as a real story with real people. It happened at a real time in Israel's history. There's nothing in the way that it's presented to make us think that these events did not actually happen. But, th but there is another side to it as well, and maybe this is part of the reason for it. We live in an age where everything good is interpreted in terms of happiness and success. So to be blessed by God is to be happy and successful. At the extreme end of that, we hear the prosperity teachers who say God wants all of us to be happy and healthy and rich. And if only we're faithful to him, then he will make us so. But the reality, of course, is very different. And if you look at the course of church history, if you look at some of the great saints of history, you'll often find they went through great sadnesses in their own families and sometimes in their own marriages. A friend of mine is writing a book on the history of the church over the last 150 years. As part of that, he's done studies on some of the great religious figures at that time, some of the great evangelical figures. And from time to time, he's been asked to lecture on the subject and he has a talk on four greats of the age of that 150 years. He speaks about J.C. Ryle, who was Bishop of Liverpool, writer of many magnificent books on the evangelical faith. He uh, speaks about William Booth, the, foundation, the founder of the Salvation Army. He speaks of D.L. Moody, the great American evangelist, and Charles Spurgeon, the famed Baptist preacher. And he came to dinner on uh, Tuesday evening. We were talking about these people. And he said one very striking thing. All of them had very, very difficult marriages. One had a wife who had chronic illness, was unable to get out of bed for years. Another's wife battled with severe depression. A couple of the wives just were very difficult, it seems. J.C. Ryle himself, I had no idea of this, was married three times. He lost two wives to sickness, one when he was very young and she was very young. Now, it must be heartbreaking, those different situations, having to face that. I don't know what you make of it. Uh, but I make this, 
that sometimes the greatest of people know real heartache in their home situations. Maybe it's a cross they're asked to bear. See, God never promises us an easy life. See, the fact is we would love our spiritual leaders to have exemplary home wives, happy marriages, obedient children, wonderful husbands or wives. We'd love their faithfulness to be rewarded by great blessing at home. But it isn't always so. So if we think like that, it's a sort of shallow thinking and shallow Christianity. God does not always lead his people into ways that we would naturally regard as happy or filled with success. Many great Christians have known and still experience enormous heartache in the home. And I guess some of us have known that sort of heartache. Anyone who's had a child who rebels against them will be able to understand much better God's love for his wayward children. Anyone who's experienced the devastation of marriage breakup. Maybe these words come as enormous encouragement. Maybe those of us who have known bereavement, who've lost someone very, very dear to us, can understand something of the gaping hole there must have been in God's heart. And isn't it reassuring, therefore, to know that God feels exactly the same way when these things happen to him? When we rebel against God, that is how he feels. When God looks out at the world, at the church, that seems to follow other gods, this is exactly how he feels. That's the call. It's an extraordinary call. But Hosea was being asked to bear a little bit of the cross that God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ was asked to bear. Then third, the consequence. We see that in verses 4 to 11. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again, he gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Verse 8, after she'd weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. The Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now you see, if Gomer, Hosea's wife, is a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, the three children are a picture of what will happen to Israel as a consequence of her apostasy. She has three children. All three names show something of the fate that awaits Israel. The first child is Jezreel, which means scattered. Actually sounds very like Israel in Hebrew, so maybe Hosea thought, thought he'd heard it wrongly. And God was telling him to call his son Israel, but no, 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 it was Jezreel. And there are three ways to understand this. And the first is a little bit of the reference we get here. You may remember the story of uh, Ahab and Naboth's vineyard uh, back in the time of the kings. Naboth had a family vineyard which Ahab the king coveted. And uh, he, Ahab offered Naboth all sorts of inducement to sell up. But Naboth said, no, I won't. It's a family vineyard. I love it. No, I'm perfectly happy. I will stay. Ahab was so angry that he was persuaded by his wife Jezebel to have Naboth killed, and he took over the vineyard. As a result, God promised that judgment would come on Ahab's house in the valley of Jezreel. Ahab was killed there. Then Jehu, who took over the throne, also committed a terrible massacre there, for which judgment was due. And that's what we read about here in these verses, the massacre at Jezreel. And God is saying, in calling your son Jezreel, what this points to is the coming judgment that is going to come. And that brings us to the second word, the second point about it. The meaning of the word is scattered. Israel would be scattered as a judgment for her rebellion. 
Very soon after this, Israel will be defeated by the Assyrians. The people will be taken off into exile, and they will be literally scattered. That's what the Assyrians did when they took over a country. Uh, they went into a land, they took it over, they took the people, they transported them to somewhere completely different, and they replaced them with people from another people that they'd uh, conquered elsewhere. That's why, you see, Samaria was the capital of northern kingdom of Israel. That's why the Samaritan religion was always held in such low esteem, because it was a mixture of all the different people's religion who'd been placed together uh, in Israel and in Samaria, all these people from elsewhere. The Jewish people scattered all over the world, other people brought in to take their place. And that has been the history of the Jewish people ever since, hasn't it? Today they're scattered all over the world. That's what the word means, scattered. But there is also an application towards all of us. The principle that when we reject God, we get into trouble. So we cannot be faithful to God, or we cannot be unfaithful to God and expect to get away with it without any cost. Someone put it like this, when you run away from God, you never get to where you're going and you always pay your own bills. When you go God's way, you always get to where you're going and he pays the bills. The point is, you see, God is faithful. But one expression of his faithfulness is that when we run away from him, things will not grow well. He will scatter our dreams in our faces. That's the first child, Jezreel. Then a second child is born. But it's interesting, a little touch here. We're not told that this is Hosea's son in verse 6. Do you notice that? In verse 3, he married Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. No mention of Hosea here. Maybe he wasn't the father. While the child was born, it's called Lohruhama. This means not loved, not pitied. Maybe Hosea knew the child wasn't his, and so became a cause of deep resentment. But the point is, the second result of Israel's unfaithfulness is that God's love will be withdrawn. It's not that God doesn't love Israel. It's that he withdraws his love for a season. You see, God is a God of love. He is merciful. He's long-suffering. The love does endure forever. But when we insist on going our own way and persevering in sin, the time comes when that love is withdrawn and we are abandoned to our folly. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 1? He said, because of people's sin, we're told three times that God gave his people up to their sin. Now, it's easy to read that and think that meant that God gave up on his people. He threw his hands in the air and said, that's it, I had enough for you. Go, I don't want any more to do with you. It isn't quite that. It's as though God says, if that's the way you want to go, you go that way. And you see where it takes you. And then they'll begin to come back when they realize where it's taken them. So it's not that God gives up on them finally, but God says, okay, if you want to go, then go. And in some ways, that's been the story of Israel through the ages. It's certainly true of Christian people who go their own way. Not loved. God withdraws his love. Then the third child is born, Lo Ami. This means not my people. Now the Bible is the story, isn't it, of how special a place the Jewish people had in God's estimation. And the place the Bible appears suggests that they will have again in the new order. But it's taken from them. They are no longer a God's special people when you come in a sense to the New Testament. They may be in the future. There is the promise that there will be a great coming back. But much of the New Testament is about the chance the people had of Israel, and they rejected it. And so the gospel went elsewhere. 
It went on to all the world. Some of Jesus' parables suggest exactly that, the tenants in the vineyard, the great supper, in many ways are a fulfillment of what God is saying here. Such is the reality, you see, of what happens when we reject God. We're scattered. We lose his mercy. We're no longer his people. Not just true of the Jewish people, of the people of Israel here. It's true of us as well. Listen to these words in Romans 11, verses 17 to 21. In fact, you may want to turn to them, because they're fascinating insight the Apostle Paul gives us into this. Romans 11, 17 to 21. It is on page 1,138. He's talking here about uh, the, the Jewish people as the, as the original tree, and we as Christian believers who have been grafted onto that tree. And he says this, if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. So don't be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. In other words, if this is the way God treated his people in the Old Testament, he will treat you in just the same way. He will withdraw his love. We will no longer be his people. Sin and rebellion, you see, has a price. That's the cost that we will face. But there's always another side with the Bible, isn't there? And that's what we get at the end of this passage, verse 10 to chapter 2, verse 1. Yet, he says, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. This is stage four. This is the covenant. This is the promise. This is what God promises to his people. And do you see how the judgment of the children is here reversed? Do you see how not my people becomes the sons of the living God? Where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. They will be people of God again. Those who have been scattered become reunited. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited. They'll be brought back from their lands and brought together. They will appoint one leader and will come out of that land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. The one who's unloved, from whom the love has been withdrawn, say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. So do you see, even here, in the midst of judgment, there is this promise of restoration for the future, as it always is in the Bible. Now, the story of Hosea is, chapter 1, in a sense, encapsulated. It's just an illustration of what God introduces to us here. It uh, develops these particular themes, how those who've been scattered will be brought together. Those who are not loved will be loved. Those who are not God's people will be, again, God's people, if they will turn to him. And we'll learn lots of lessons as we go through. But I just want to leave us with these two brief thoughts as I close. And the first is this, rebellion... Spiritual adultery always pays a price. Let us never think that we can reject God 
without any consequences because there are countless millions of people who think they can. There are many people who've walked with Christ at some stage. They don't walk with him any longer, but they don't think it's very serious. Oh, it's all right. It's okay. Spiritual rebellion is never okay. Sin never gives us what we want. It always promises what it cannot deliver, and it cuts us off from God himself. It is serious. But at the same time, there's also a wonderful lesson about the love of God for us. That even when we run from him, even when we reject him, he still loves us and wants us back. He may let us go as with the prodigal son, but he is always waiting for us to return, to run back to him. And the story of Hosea is just this constant call to come back, to come back, to come back. I've no doubt that's what Hosea said to Gomer, his wife, on many occasions. Come back, come home. And God says that to us again and again and again. It's the message we have to take to the world. And why do we say it? How do we know it? How, do we, how can we be sure that God really loves us? This isn't just a lovely story. Well, because of the greatest love story of all, the cross. So whenever we look at the cross, we know, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us even when we have rejected him. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And Hosea is a wonderful picture of the love of God for us. So let's not presume upon that love, but let's not doubt it. Because God does love us, and Christ is the supreme proof of it. Let's pray, and then we'll sing our final hymn together. Let's pray. How deep the Father's love for us. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Quite extraordinary, our Heavenly Father, that you should compare your love to the, to the love of human beings being rejected and that you feel that pain of rejection. Lord, forgive us when we reject you. Please help us never to presume upon you. Please help us to seek to do all we can to be faithful to you. But also help us never to doubt that you love us and that you always want us back. And if we have drifted, help us to run back to you, we pray. And teach us as we go through this wonderful book more about maybe our own faithlessness and more about your faithfulness. For Jesus' sake. Amen.